Hey everyone, thanks for listening. Before we get started on today's show, I wanted to let you know that affiliates of the Samuel Du Bois Cook Center on Social Equity at Duke have published three new books that you'll want to check out. If you go to the Cook Center website, socialequity.duke.edu, under our research tab, you'll find links to a revised edition of From Here to Equality, Reparations for Black Americans in the 21st Century, The Pandemic Divide, How COVID Increased Inequality in America, and A Dream Defaulted, The Student Loan Crisis Among Black Borrowers. These books are incredibly insightful and amplify our mission at the Cook Center to offer policy solutions to racial, social, and financial inequities. That website again is socialequity.duke.edu, and you'll find those books under the research tab. All right, let's get to the show. That's just the way that catastrophes play out. It doesn't affect everybody equally. Because of the dominance of Gandhi and Gandhian nonviolence in how many African Americans and other Americans understood the Indian struggle, caste was uh, never a, a central piece to how most civil rights activists and others viewed the struggle in India. Fighting alone has its own uh, merits, but in a globalized world where capital is moving around and new information is traveling fast, I think it is also important for marginalized groups to come together and, and form coalitions. You're listening to Voices in Equity, the official podcast of the Samuel Du Bois Cook Center on Social Equity at Duke University. On our first podcast series, we're focusing on the pandemic divide, how COVID increased inequality in America. It's a collaborative book from faculty, many here at Duke, who are committed to shining a light on inequities and truly making a difference. On today's episode, we're expanding upon our conversations to discuss social movements in the United States and India. Here to unpack the historical context and what we can do about it are three guests. Professor Nico Slate from the History Department at Carnegie Mellon University, Professor Amit Thorat from the Center for the Study of Regional Development in the School of Social Sciences at Jawaharlal Nehru University, and Arko Dasgupta, graduate student at the Dietrich College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Carnegie Mellon University. In this episode, the participants discuss multiple terms and prominent scholars relating to casteism and racism. To clarify and learn more about each of these topics, we encourage you to visit the webpage built specifically for this episode, linked in the show notes. And now to the conversation. Hosting today is Dr. William Sandy Darity, director of the Cook Center. Here's Dr. Darity. The Samuel Du Bois Cook Center was in its birthing stages. And at that point, we had a seminar that we'd introduced for undergraduates at Duke, the Global Inequality Research Initiative Seminar, which was an opportunity for Duke students, undergraduate students in particular, to work on original research of their own design. The opening topic for the first Geary seminar was uh, the following. Subaltern peoples, comparative experiences of African Americans, Dalits, and tribals. So we started the Geary seminar by examining in a comparative way the conditions and circumstances that confront 
blacks in the United States whose ancestors were enslaved here, and Dalits and tribals in India. Today, we're going to try to pursue that and, in a sense, coming full circle on the podcast from the Samuel Du Bois Cook Center on Social Equity, we're going to pursue that comparative project again uh, in light of developments that have taken place since the period in which we started the Geary Seminar. I think that this particular topic is of vital importance in part because of the provocation that's been given by Isabel Wilkerson's book, Caste, where she has argued that the concept of caste, which lies at the foundation of the inequalities that are experienced and encountered by Dalits and tribals in India, that the concept of caste is actually a more illuminating idea for understanding patterns of hierarchy between social groups across multiple societies. In her book, she gives particular attention to the experience of African Americans in the United States, but also she describes that the, the conditions of, of social hierarchy that were associated with Nazi Germany as another instance of, of caste conditions. Uh, so I'd like to open the conversation today by asking each one of our commentators to talk about the relationship between caste and race as they see it, and uh, if they've had an opportunity to look at Isabel Wilkerson's book, make some comments about whether or not they think her, her thesis about the superiority of caste as a concept for understanding intergroup disparities is, is an accurate one. And I'd like to begin with Professor Nico Slate. First thing I would say is that we are continuing a rich and historic series of conversations about connections between African American struggles against racism in this country, the United States, and the struggles of people in India against caste oppression and other forms of inequity. As many of those here know, and I expect many of those listening also know, the great B.R. Ambedkar reached out to W.B. Du Bois, the African-American scholar and activist back in the 1940s, and suggested connections between racism and casteism. Since that time, there have been many efforts to form both analytical bridges and other forms of solidarity between the struggles of Dalits and tribals in India and the struggles of African-Americans in this country. I think it's important for us to recognize that long history for two reasons, because we can learn from the way that those in the past have established those uh, connections and solidarities, but also because recognizing the sheer length of connections between these different struggles suggests to me that there is, in fact, a lot of utility to making these kinds of comparisons. So, Dr. Darity, you ask about Isabel Wilkerson's book in particular. I think her central thesis is very revealing. I think, uh, at least I as a reader was compelled that she makes a strong case for the analytical utility and the political utility of thinking about American racism and white supremacy in particular through the lens of caste. The more specificity we can bring to that conversation, the better, because uh, the what perhaps the main lesson I've learned from looking at the histories of these comparisons is that they can all too easily degenerate into a kind of defensiveness 
where on either end of the spectrum, people will say, well, I'm sure we have problems, but it's not as bad as what they have over there. So um, Americans, particularly white Americans, often said, well, sure, race is a problem in this country, but it's not as bad as that whole untouchability thing. And in India, higher caste folks often said, sure, the caste is still a problem, but well, it's you know outlawed in the Indian constitution. It's not as bad as that American racism thing. So it's easy to become defensive. And it's also easy to fall into gross generalizations that can skip over the complexities of race and caste and other forms of identity and of inequity in the two countries. So what I would offer as a, as a beginning contribution to our conversation is, is the importance of recognizing the history of these conversations, rooting ourselves in that tradition, and learning from those traditions many things. Uh, for me, first and foremost, the importance of avoiding defensiveness and of, of recognizing the complexity of the identities at play and of uh, the potential solidarities that people have long tried to forge. Professor Amit Torrett, do you have any thoughts about this, this uh, juxtaposition of casteism versus racism? I think there are similarities and differences. Uh, and I see there are more similarities in, in understanding identity either through a racial lens or a caste lens. And my, I come from a perspective where I think it's a belief when you see a particular group. Uh, in the case of caste in India, the untouchables or low caste are so diverse and spread out across the country that you cannot generalize them into a particular kind of racial or ethnic uh, identity. And still, uh, they are identified clearly, uh, they are put in their place. And the social, political, and uh, norms which apply through religious law uh, are practiced. People would try to hide their caste in India. We know through studies that they do that while applying for jobs, but it's easily found out. I think the, the strength of this perspective of belief is so ingrained that I think the similarities are in the fact that uh, no matter what you do, your level of education, income, uh, intergenerational mobility, we find again and again that no matter how much you strive to be as good or uh, even better than the so-called privileged groups, uh, the perspective doesn't change. No matter uh, what your racial background is, how you look, uh, how, how well you've done over two, three generations, the idea that somehow a particular caste, people, or a particular racial group people need to be treated and looked in a particular way, this doesn't leave you. And I think that is ingrained in a belief system. And I think there, both caste and race are very, very similar. As someone said very eloquently that you can take Indians, if you take Indians out of India to Europe or America, and you're seeing all that happening in America, they take caste with them. Caste, I, I feel, is... Uh, a much stronger identification, at least in the uh, Asian continent, in Nepal, Bangladesh, Pakistan, Sri Lanka, we see this again and again. Uh, uh, and the intermixing is much less, to my knowledge, than the racial mixing and, and, and uh, interactions. I think that historically in the United States, the racial mixing that you describe finds its beginnings in the period of slavery. And uh, that racial mixing frequently was heavily coerced. Uh, 
to put a fine point on it, uh, black women were frequently raped by their owners. I, I think it's only in more contemporary times that we can talk about the voluntariness or the mutual consent dimension of interracial relationships. But the historic foundation for race mixing in the United States is perhaps just as violent as the caste mixing that might have taken place in India to the extent that it has. We don't have the history of purification rituals associated with interracial contact that have been associated with intercaste contact. And so maybe that accounts for the, the, the perhaps lower degree of intercaste mixing, but I think that there's, there are strong similarities in terms of the conditions that have produced those types of intermixtures in both societies. I, I think you described the phenomenon of passing in the Indian context as people conveying that they have a different caste position to try to gain employment or other kinds of social opportunities. We have a long history of that in the United States as well. You suggested that people aren't really particularly successful at doing it. Could you comment further on that? You know, why is it that it's very, very hard to, uh, to claim an alternative caste position uh, in the Indian context? You're absolutely right. Talking about your first point, uh, the notion of purity, this is exactly something which comes from a religious belief system which defines purity. And it's uh, notional. Uh, it's not based on any germ theory of science or anything that you, you know, get in contact with particular people. They are, you know, carriers of some particular kind of diseases or viruses, uh, nothing of that sort. But uh, bodily fluids, blood, spit, sweat, everything is seen extremely, extremely polluting, not just physically, but spiritually and ritually. And therefore, the possibility of people marrying across caste uh, becomes extremely difficult. Coming to your second point about passing, I mean, at a level where, at say, when uh, in India now, urbanization is the norm. And right now, about 45% of the population is urban, and we expect it to reach 60% by 35 And there, a lot of migration is happening. Because agriculture sector is in distress, manufacturing sector is in distress, people are having to migrate a lot. And when labor migrates uh, and, and they're, they're, they're transient from one place to another, uh, they could uh, try and pass themselves off as someone else. Because uh, right now, it, the economy is not doing well, recession is looming, and we have the highest unemployment rate ever since independence. So I would imagine that if there are fewer jobs and there is a, a competition for jobs, the social networks and caste networks would come into play. And the backward and forward linkages between rural and urban areas uh, would imply that you would try and get a job through your caste networks. But if you have to then transcend that, you would have to either lie about your caste, take a different name, etc. So some of that might be possible for people who are low-income group uh, or just above the poverty line and doing three, four jobs ma as manual laborers, etc., on construction or other places. When we look at the middle and upper middle class who are second or third generation uh, beneficiaries of, say, the reservation policy, 
for tri- for dalits for instance at the time of independence a great leader a great academic uh, dr ambedkar who came from the dalit community extensively educated in the west he was charged with the task of writing india's constitution and because he came from untouchable or a dalit background he ensured that when india uh, becomes independent and goes on a path of development and etc the a fair share of representation should be given to dalits tribals uh, because they had historically for almost 3000 years been excluded from any kind of access to education or ownership of assets wealth land etc imagine anything and they were denied access to that so in order to change that historic reality and bring these communities into the mainstream of economic development and growth a policy of reser- reservations was introduced which meant that a particular share or a particular percentage of jobs in the federal or the government sector or educational institutions by the run and started and funded by the government and in the legislature would be reserved for people belonging to ex enslaved or ex untouchable communities as well as tribal communities another way to think about this is that this is the indian variant of what we refer to in the united states as affirmative action exactly uh and, and yeah and interestingly enough it actually long predates the implementation of affirmative action in the united states yes yes yeah uh, so i'd like to encourage everybody to jump in but i'm i'm going to turn next to arco uh who arco dasgupta who have not had an opportunity to hear from yet there's uh an observation that that professor slate made a moment ago about this notion that uh frequently people in the more privileged or advantaged positions in a society say well things aren't as bad as they used to be and in the us context i think we sometimes refer to this as a post racial narrative is there a parallel post caste narrative in india what's the evidence on on the way in which that type of narrative might be mobilized there vis-a-vis the mobilization of the post-racial narrative in the United States. Before I respond uh, to that specific question, I'd just add that the Indian counterpart to the affirmative uh, action uh, policy here in the United States called reservations is one that holds that caste can be the sole criterion to advance a historically disadvantaged people. Whereas here in the United States, the Supreme Court has... made it explicitly clear that race can be only one such criterion but not the sole criterion for advancement uh, and of course it is the subject of current conversation here in this country the very arrangement of reservations is sometimes invoked to put forward a post caste narrative in india so for instance people who come from historically advantaged castes often think of reservations as some sort of poverty alleviation program and uh, submit that okay you've had a generation or two of reservations uh, benefiting uh, say a dalit family and now they are economically better off why do we need uh, this arrangement to be in place any longer and that of course does not 
fully uh, make peace with the foundational principles on which the reservation system works. Also, I'd like to, if I could, respond to the initial question you had asked with respect to Isabel Wilkerson's work, connections between the intellectual and experiential lives of Dalits and African-Americans have been made for over a century. Political and cultural representatives like Ambedkar uh, and Du Bois, as Nico mentioned, thought out these questions and scholars like Oliver Cox worked on this subject too. Uh, Lloyd Warner once famously remarked that regardless of the economic uh, status that an African-American man might achieve in uh, relation to or with respect to caste, he's always going to maintain an inferior position uh, in relation to a white man. Uh, Isabel Wilkerson, like John Dollard, suggests that the institution of caste originates uh, or finds place in the American story in the American South. But unlike John Dollard, goes on to say that it then spreads everywhere. There are some points that Wilkerson makes with respect to the idea of caste that I don't think is fully replicated in the American experience. So for instance, notions of pollution and polluting. As sociologist Deepankar Gupta has articulated uh, in the past, even in the antebellum South, you would have an African-American cook or an African-American wet nurse. Uh, it'd be unthinkable for a Dalit cook or a Dalit wet nurse uh, to serve at uh, an upper caste household. And then Wilkerson, I thought in her text, did not fully flesh out the middling castes. She, make, she makes references to the middling castes, but caste is an arrangement, an institution that is not bipolar and needs a complex uh, set of dependencies on a range of castes and subcastes in order to function, including the middling castes. And finally, since you, uh, Professor Darity, very explicitly mentioned the example or the invocation of Nazi Germany that Wilkerson draws out in a book, I found that to be a little misplaced. Uh, I think it's a hard case to make that there was ideological symmetry between and among Nazi Germany, the American South, and uh, India. I thought she was more intent on genealogically tracing the inception of racist legislation or the Nuremberg principles to racist legislation in the American South, which there has been work on. But uh, caste does not need legal sanction to operate. You had laws that the Nazis enshrined, uh, which very clearly disadvantaged certain people. But caste as an institution does not need the sanction of laws or codification to function and operates outside the purview of uh, a centralized state that has uh, such uh, uh, statutes in place. Uh, so I'll end so there for now. Yes. If, if, I, if I put the adjective structural in front of racism, would I be talking about exactly what Wilkerson is claiming to be discussing when she uses the notion of caste or casteism? And I certainly don't think in the U.S. context that you necessarily need the sanction of law for structural racism to operate and have its effects. 
Yes, uh, and similarly in India, you don't need uh, the sanction of law to have casteism uh, play out in the public and private spheres. There can be a case made for an argument that there is an attempt to highlight structural casteism and structural racism that operates beyond our statute books. But if one then returns to a scholar I mentioned, like Oliver Cox, he is very adamant in maintaining, of course, he wrote this 60, 70 years ago, that caste and race operate in two vastly different ontological universes, that caste can only operate in a Hindu, broadly speaking, Indic society with Indic values and faiths. And race, for instance, can only operate under conditions of capitalism. It's a lot more complex than that, but uh, this is the very subject or, or the very nature of the debate where you have a range of scholars thinking that uh, these are concepts that uh, have overlaps, more overlaps than differences than those believing otherwise. Um, and the conversation is, of course, ongoing. And uh, Wilkerson has injected uh, uh, new life into a debate that has been on for over a century. It strikes me that even, let's say, 10 years ago in the United States, one could say that the most dominant form of racism in our society was structural racism, that we had managed through the civil rights era to eliminate many of the uh, more overt forms of discrimination, but that we still had these um, structural forms of racism built into, for example, our criminal justice system, our educational system, et cetera. But recently, I, I find, I think like many other Americans, that one of the most troubling uh, dimensions in our society is a resurgence of more outright forms of white supremacy and discrimination, right, from, uh, you know, the former occupant of the White House to, you know, people in uh, forms of, uh, you know, cultural power across our society. And my sense as an outsider is that you might see a similar trend in India, that there is more willingness to openly advocate casteism and caste uh, sort of hierarchies. And I would, I would just love to pose that as a question is, are we seeing a resurgence in India of more overt intentional casteism as versus more structural forms of caste and caste inequity? And, and, I, and I'm also just curious how these things relate to each other, how, how more structural, more, um, you, you know, built-in forms of inequity relate to people openly advocating white supremacy in this country, for example, or caste and casteism in India. Nico, you're right. It is, it is both. I think with the present dispensation, which is uh, whose political mandate or whose politics is of polarization of all kinds. It is intellect, ideological, left versus right. It is religious, Hindus versus Muslims. And it is identity politics, groups versus others. It is becoming more structural in the sense because in the last eight years we have seen there was an attempt at doing away with reservation where I think the Allahabad High Court went on to say something about that reservation should not be there or stopped. I'm not very clear. Then it was struck down. We know that the historic allocation of funds by the government, there were special allocations which were called the sub-plans for the Dalits or the scheduled caste and tribals that a, a particular amount of the annual budget was earmarked only for these 
groups and different policy measures had to be funded through that has been done away with. Uh, as Orko was mentioning, we recently have now reservations for the upper caste and, uh, and so-called the poor upper caste. The justification that is given by the Supreme Court is that this is for the poor people, but because there is a reservation for the marginalized communities like the tribals, Dalits, OBC, etc., uh, uh, and they cannot get double reservation because of their poor status, this should be confined to the upper caste. And, and I was in a recent conference where an ex-Supreme Court judge was speaking, uh, who was on that case. And he said, be under no uh, illusion that this is, we have reservations in government jobs and other places for differently able people, uh, children of ex-servicemen, uh, uh, if you are a sports personality, and all these are, can apply multiply. And if you're women also. So a woman who is, uh, whose parents are from the army background, and if she's differently able, could avail three different kinds of uh, reservations or, uh, uh, you know, in combination. However, that has been overlooked. And uh, the, the EWS reservation only applies to the upper caste. So with all these legislative changes, judici judicial so-called intervention, we see that there is a huge political drive and a structural kind of a push to change constitutional norms, legislated policies, funding, etc. in a massive way. So, there, yeah, definitely. I would agree with you. Uh, there was something that struck me in Professor Torat's last remarks where he mentioned the inclusion of women as a category that would be eligible for the benefits of Indian affirmative action. That struck me because here we are, a group of four men, discussing these kinds of issues. And uh, I wanted to get, I wanted to challenge each one of us to provide some reflections on the gender dimensions of casteism and racism uh, in a comparative vein. And perhaps uh, the best way to start is to actually get some data about this. And I know, uh, Professor Torat, that you are uh, one of the world's experts on the Indian Human Development Survey. Uh, so I was curious as to whether or not you could give us some insights about the disparities that are associated with the intersection of caste and gender in the Indian context. I mean, I don't even need to cut it by gender if I just put some figures in front of you. For instance, if I just look at, yeah, if I just look at wealth and there is a, a national sample survey, uh, official uh, wealth survey. Yeah, the last one was done in 2013 and we hope something else will happen soon, but uh, hardly any surveys are happening these days. Uh, we, all the official surveys which were happening except one, everything is on hold. So we don't know how, what is the poverty level, we don't know many things. Uh, but uh, from 2013, which is called the Debt and Investment Survey, the survey, what it does it at, at the household level, it looks at the land, ownership, buildings owned by households, uh, shops or, or, or other buildings, livestock, farm, non-farm equipment, transport vehicles, and financial assets like shares, debentures, deposit, etc and gold ornaments. And it looks at all these assets in the household and then it values them. And then it creates an average or a share 
of who who owns how much and we find that in 2013 if we just look at scheduled caste uh population in the country they own 7.6% of the total wealth as compared to say the upper caste hindus who own 41% of the total wealth so 7% versus 41 how does this compare with their uh population share drastically the 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 schedule caste are about 16 to 18% now and the upper caste uh would be about if you take uh the forward caste and the brahmin together 10% brahmin brahmins would be about 5% uh and forward caste would be about 30% they are about 30% uh, scs would be about 20% so uh 30% population having access to almost 40% of the uh, uh share and if i am sure if i disaggregate this entire 30% by upper caste brahmin and forward caste the share of the brahmin would be even much more higher disproportionately higher to their population share if we look at the average value of assets per household uh this translates to about 6.2000 rupees for the scheduled caste as compared to 27.7 uh 1000 rupees for the upper caste and typically in a indian household being a male dominated and if you look at the data from the same round only about 10% or odd households were female headed household so you can imagine that the the gender dimension the 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 female population is almost 50-50 in india so the disadvantage of a say a uh, woman who is tribal or dalit and it's three times uh, as a woman as a as a dalit person and as a poor person or a wealth or income deprived person and the same patriarchal norms of uh, ownership of assets or decision intra household decision making etc apply across social groups in india Uh, i won't say that the dalits of the uh, dalits are more they're not as patriarchal as the upper caste though that may not be cased with uh, of the tribes uh, many tribal communities are known to be much much more egalitarian uh, in terms of gender uh, norms and relations and there are other matrilinear or uh, uh, societies as well in kerala or in the northeast but i feel the the group that therefore suffers the most uh which are called triply oppressed in india by a lot of uh, women organizations are the women from the dalits and the tribal communities especially those who are in the lower income groups or below poverty line professor slate i I'd, i'd love to come to a topic that you and i discussed in a previous conversation which is the position of iconic figures in the rights movements that took place in the united states and in india So the civil rights movement in the United States, the Dalit rights movement in India, and particular iconic figures, you know, we have made a a a lot of mention of Dr. Ambedkar, who uh was the great Dalit leader and the person who essentially wrote the reservation scheme into the Indian constitution. but we haven't said anything about the figure who most people associate with the Indian independence movement Gandhi 
And I was hoping you might talk about Gandhi's relationship to Martin Luther King Jr. in the United States, perhaps with Malcolm X, who is usually positioned as the, uh, the counterpoint to Martin Luther King Jr., and also uh, Gandhi's relationship with the Dalit community in India. So that's that's kind of a, a lot of stuff, but <laughs> it is a lot. It is a lot, but I very much appreciate the question. I'll try to be brief. I, I would start by saying that, as you suggested, most Americans are familiar to the extent that they're familiar at all with the Indian, Indian, Indian independence struggle. They're they're familiar with Gandhi and they associated with Gandhi, and that was true for most African Americans as well. Gandhi became a huge figure for many African-Americans, including famous leaders like uh, Martin Luther King and others. And the way that Gandhi was understood matters. Uh, many people at the time understood Gandhi not just as a paragon of nonviolence, which is how I think most people think of him today, but also as a leader of what Du Bois famously called the dark or colored world. Gandhi was seen as a man of color who had stood up against white imperialism and white supremacy. And you see that in the way that African-Americans looked to Gandhi in the 1920s and 1930s, but also how many of them looked to Gandhi in the 1950s and 1960s. Martin Luther King included was drawn not just to Gandhi's nonviolence, but also to his positionality in opposition to white supremacy. What is lost in that translation, and I do see it as a translation from the Indian context into the American um, anti-racist struggle, what is lost to a large degree is caste and casteism. Uh, Gandhi's relationship to caste is extremely complicated. To boil it down briefly and, and oversimplify it, I would argue that Gandhi starts off very much a casteist who believes in caste hierarchies. He's a critic of untouchability, but not of caste itself. And you can find him early on saying that he believes in caste uh, prohibitions regarding marriage, in, in prohibitions regarding dining. Over time, I would argue Gandhi evolves in his views on caste. He becomes more critical of caste itself as an institution. He comes to actually embrace intercaste marriages and intercaste dining. But I would argue he doesn't come as far as one might hope. Um, I'm I, Personally, I think he remains quite patronizing in his views of caste and the caste struggle. When he looks at how a figure like Ambedkar is championing the rights of Dalits and others in India, he can be, again, surprisingly patronizing, but also critical of the same kinds of methods that Gandhi would advocate using against British imperialism. So he supports nonviolent civil disobedience against the British, but not within the struggle against caste and casteism. So he has serious limitations, if you if you want to put it that way, and others I think would be uh, even more harsh in terms of how he approaches caste. I think it's important to recognize his progress, but also to recognize his limitations. And in terms of how he's then picked up in the American context, I think because of the dominance of Gandhi and Gandhian nonviolence in how many African Americans and other Americans understood the Indian struggle, caste was um, never a, a central piece to how most civil rights activists and others viewed the struggle in India. But I think that that has changed over time. I think that um, over time, largely as the result of figures like Ambedkar and, and later Dalit activists, um, the Dalit Panthers, for example, in the 1970s and later, um, there has been a more concerted effort to shift how Americans and particularly African-Americans and other civil rights activists in this country understand India and Indian society. And I think you find many more 
African-American anti-racist activists today and other anti-racists in this country who are more knowledgeable about caste and casteism and more willing to stand up and argue against it. So my own sense is that the prominence of Gandhi was a stumbling block for many African-Americans in their conception of caste. And and actually, one last thing, I'm I'm struggling to be brief, but I'm trying. Um, He wasn't the only stumbling block. You know, quite famously, when Martin Luther King uh, and Coretta Scott King visit India in the late 1950s, they have a conversation with Jawaharlal Nehru that um, touches on issues of caste. And Nehru explains to them that, yes, caste was a problem in India, but it was outlawed. There these new reservation policies, and they're doing all they can to fight it. And the kings leave India with, I think, too rosy an impression of, of India's progress against caste and casteism. And in that case, the impression isn't one they get from Gandhi. It's one they get from Nehru and other leading Indians at that time, most of whom are themselves upper caste. If I could, a few years into Gandhi's uh, return to India from South Africa, and he begins to be consistently covered by the African-American press, and the figure of Gandhi looms large over what is later called the civil rights movement. Uh, You have larger-than-life figures like MLK, uh, who are incredibly in awe of Gandhi uh, and figures that are more critical of Gandhi, like Benjamin Mays, who feels that Gandhi has done much to prevent the practice of untouchability, but does not go far enough to uh, critique, uh, criticize the institution of caste, as uh, Nico uh, mentioned. Uh, And then there are figures who shift in their uh, uh, understanding of Gandhi over the course of a decade or two. And I have in mind uh, someone like a Langston Hughes, who's a communist, and then uh, by the early to mid-1940s is writing in admiration of Gandhi and his fasts against the British Empire. I also recall Reverend James Lawson saying some time ago that uh, reading Gandhi's autobiography in the 1940s, as he did, convinced him that Gandhi was very explicit in his condemnation of caste and race. And there are those, of course, who will dispute that. But there is no denying the fact that A, Gandhi is someone who is intensely debated and discussed in the African-American press, including in uh, news uh, papers like the Pittsburgh Courier that was published from the city I am now in. Uh, and B, that Gandhi was for a long time the only major uh, national figure who was debating Ambedkar. There were many others who were simply not engaging with Ambedkar in the public realm. And that is something I feel should also be submitted. Also, the famous meeting that Gandhi has with the Thurmans in 1936 with Howard Thurman and uh, Sue Thurman, where he suggests that it is quite possibly through the African-Americans that the unadulterated message of nonviolence may uh, be spread to the world. And three decades hence, that is exactly what happens, courtesy Martin Luther King and the civil rights movement. And before I finish this thread, I'd also like to mention figures who are otherwise not uh, as discussed, who are otherwise not as prominent. Some of them happen to be women, uh, figures like Pandita Ramabai and over here, Diane Nash, who sought inspiration from Gandhi's concept of jail, no bail, and went to jail even when she was pregnant with her child and refused to pay bail money to 
get out. Uh, so it is a wide cast of uh, uh, prominent figures and figures who are not as prominent. And I think uh, uh, an obsessive focus on MLK and Gandhi sometimes has a tendency to obscure the rest, which we should be cautious about. Well, there is one fundamental chain of events that I think we have to discuss with respect to Gandhi, which is his consistency in going on on fast in opposition to communal roles for the Dalits in the parliamentary system. I think that that's something that's unambiguous and has to be treated as as a real critical point in looking at Gandhi. One thing I want to make sure we get in is a discussion of the linkage to the pandemic and uh, an analysis of how the pandemic has influenced inequality, particularly caste disparities in the Indian context, so that we can set up a comparison with the other work that we've done in this podcast on how inequality has been increased in the United States as a consequence of the pandemic. I'm, uh, during the pandemic, I mean, uh, it was tough to do any kind of research, uh, ground-level research. But I managed with a few students of mine to do a telephonic survey during the second phase of the lockdown. And we were actually looking at people's ability to find work, get access to health care, and access to education for their children. I mean, uh, everything went online and the government kind of advocated online education through internet and smartphone, etc. I think our study was one of the few studies which looked at identities explicitly. And the problems that emerged during the pandemic were, uh, the, the pandemic was a great equalizer. Everyone faced uh, all the same problems. However, we found that by the second uh, phase where transportation had stopped, supplies of essentials, food, medicine, etc. were not coming forth. Shops and city centers were restricted with the amount of stock they had. But a lot of people wanted to access that stock of medicine, of food, etc. And we found that when the stocks were getting dwindled, the shopkeepers uh, were choosing who to sell those things to. So, in fact, uh, when people were trying to access things, food, medicine, etc., through credit, or even access credit, we found that shop owners would... But they were basically being biased and just selling their whatever they had to, say, their own community people. And the worst amongst these were the Muslims and the Dalits. They were refused systematically medical care, medicines, even fruits and vegetables on credit, etc. Well, I'll build on what Professor Thora just shared and say that I think that in this country, in the United States, the pandemic was yet another uh, moment at which suddenly it seemed impossible for white Americans to continue to ignore the racial inequities in our society. And yet I think what we've learned from history is that there's this pattern where a crisis, whether it's the pandemic or a hurricane uh, or you know, the, the murder of George Floyd or 
we can go back to the civil rights era and look at the urban uprisings in the late 60s or even earlier, look at this, the civil rights crises that were generated by the sit-ins or the freedom rides. These are all moments in time when the presence of American racism is suddenly visible in ways that it had been purposefully not visible for some time. And I think that the, the challenge for all of us that want to confront racial inequity in this country or injustice and inequity in other parts of the world is to find ways to make these injustices more visible on a more permanent ongoing basis in a way that people are forced to deal with them. Because I think it's all too easy to forget. And I think in this country, certainly we're already starting to forget the pandemic and the, and the profound inequities in terms of health, in terms of poverty, in terms of other structural forms of racism and injustice that were revealed in those times. We're already uh, being encouraged to move on and move forward. And I think uh, as a historian, but also as just a concerned citizen, I think it's vital that we try to learn from these crises in ways that we can um, confront the underlying roots of these problems, the underlying, again, to go back, doc, uh, Dr. Darity, to your emphasis on the structural, those underlying structural forms of inequity and injustice. So I, I, I hope that we all in this country and in India and in other places in the world can do what we can to fight not just in these moments of crisis, but also um, afterwards to combat those forms of structural inequity and injustice. It's a tough, it's tough to think about uh, racism and casteism in today's time because uh, it, it continues after so much struggle, so much uh, immense losses of lives and, and, and everything. And it, it changes forms. As Nico was saying, this, uh, you know, the structural racism in America has continuously, uh, uh, you know, changed forms. And the same thing we find I I with casteism. People thought that with cap uh, capitalist liberal economy, uh, there'll be, uh, it'll, it'll act as a melting pot and caste will go away. But we find that it has found newer ways of uh, expressing itself. I think it's very important uh, uh, for groups across countries, across co continents, to uh, realize that unless uh, the struggles of people who suffer from racism or casteism or similar, uh, you know, marginalizations, it is extremely important. I think in in now that uh, people who are active in the in the in these struggles uh, form solidarities. Fighting alone has its own uh, merits, but in a globalized world where capital is moving around and new information is traveling fast, I think it is also important for marginalized groups to come together and, and form coalitions if we hope to think of new and better ways of, of, of fighting all kinds of oppression ex and exclusion, which is leading to immense inequalities in the world, which we have seen in, in recent times. In many ways, uh, although historians are very wary of using the expression unprecedented, the COVID-19 pandemic was with the suspension of international flights and uh, uh, the imposition of lockdowns in many parts of the world. But I think we must bear in mind that the pandemic was not a great leveler and that different groups were affected differently. Of course, this is further complicated by 
the presence of a first world within the third world and the third world within the first. Uh, but other uh, sources of uh, potential destruction that uh, have uh, the, the ability to wreak havoc in the way the pandemic uh, had uh, over the last two years, and I have in mind particularly climate change, operates the same way in which people who have uh, been historically uh, disadvantaged uh, continue to feel worse off. Climate change very particularly was exacerbated by colonialism. The latest IPCC report explicitly mentions that. And uh, I think it'd be nice for us to be sensitive to these uh, realities and those who are better off for them to have a sense of obligation towards those who haven't been as uh, blessed, uh, uh, philosophically speaking. So yeah, I'd like to end there. Thank you. My, my ending comment is the following, that I think that there's a sufficient degree of similarity between the processes of casteism and the processes of racism, that it's fair to describe the Dalits as the, as the blacks of India and uh, the African-Americans as the untouchables of the United States. Thank you so much, Professors Nico Slate and Amit Thorat, Arko Dasgupta, and of course, Dr. Darity for joining us on Voices in Equity from the Samuel Du Bois Cook Center on Social Equity at Duke University. The Cook Center is named after Samuel Du Bois Cook, the first tenured Black professor at Duke University who exemplified the pursuit of social justice and equality. With research focuses including social mobility, education, health, wealth, and policy, the Cook Center aims to develop a deep understanding of the causes and consequences of inequality and develop remedies for these disparities and their adverse effects. To order the book Pandemic Divide, How COVID Increased Inequality in America, head on over to socialequity.duke.edu. That's socialequity.duke.edu. The podcast music for Voices in Equity is written and produced by Karan Kareem. This podcast is edited and produced by EarFluence. I'm Maddie Braxick, and we'll see you again soon on Voices in Equity.